This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore, and we've got a fun topic today that we'll get into in just a minute. But first, it's time to pull something to the front of the show that you normally hear at the end of the show. Recognition of our associate producers. Yeah, Zach and I are very honored that we have had Renee Roberts sponsoring Standard Orbit Podcast for years, right? Renee, also known as Captain Kittyface on Twitter, under the handle at Amaris underscore 1701, has been a solid sponsor and contributor to our show and Trek FM. So thank you, Renee, for your loyalty and support. It really means a lot to us. And Ken and I would like to thank a person who has financed a lot of Trek FM, mentored us, and has just been a great friend, as well as a past host of this show, Norman Lau. Norm has got to be one of the most positive, upbeat people that, that we've known, right, Ken? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, always positive, always got a smile, never a bad thing to say about anyone just 180 degrees, 180 degrees difference from me. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> He's mirror universe kin. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but so, Norm, thank you so much, Norm. And you, you continue to give us feedback and have guests on the show, and we look forward to having you back in the future. And uh, uh, Norm can be found on Twitter at Starfighter1701. So, uh, Norm, for your support and your feedback on the show, thank you. Yeah. So, Zach. We're not done. We have a few more great people to recognize as part of our associate producer team. So we're fortunate to have Trek FM's art director. He's the host of Saturday Morning Trek, constant contributor, our friend Aaron Harvey. And I have to say that Aaron's podcast is one of the most technically proficient, funny, clever, and enjoyable shows, Zach. I mean, I I love what he does with, with Saturday Morning Trek. Absolutely. I mean, that's such an obscure niche topic, but he does such a great job with it. You know, not just Star Trek, the animated series, but like all things Star Trek in the 70s. He pulls out some great topics and and pulls in some great guests, some really insightful interviews that he does on the show. So if you guys are not listening to Saturday Morning Trek, definitely listen to it. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we're very fortunate that, that he's an associate producer on our show. And Aaron can be found on the Babel Conference and on Twitter with the handle at GeekFilter. And, you know, sincerely, Aaron, thank you. Thank you for choosing Standard Orbit. It means a lot. Absolutely. And, you know, a few months back, uh, Nick Anastasio signed up as one of our associate producers. And he's co-hosted uh, some phenomenal episodes uh, in recent weeks as well. And uh, Nick has been a very welcome addition to the Standard Orbit crew. Unfortunate. 
to have him aboard. I I, I remember Nick from from way back. He said he said his Planet of the Apes avatar that I always knew him as. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're the guy with the ape face, but uh, he doesn't have an ape face. Uh, he's a normal looking individual, and uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're very happy to have had him on the show uh, in recent weeks. And uh, he can he can be found on the Babel Conference, chiming in on all kinds of topics there. And you can hear him on episode 160, "What a Fold Can We Do Again," and episode 167, "Loss and Recovery." Here on Standard Orbit, two shows that received outstanding feedback and large audiences. So thank you again, Nick. Yeah, Nick's been a real welcome addition. But uh, hey, wait, there's more. There's more. There's more. Tim Robertson who is a longtime supporter of the Ready Room, has enlisted to serve on the mighty crew of Standard Orbit. So Tim is a big Star Trek fan, loves those monster maroons, and is now part of our family. So welcome, Tim. Uh, we're really, really thrilled that, that you chose us uh, moving over here, and uh, we look forward to receiving your input and feedback. And you know, to all our listeners, you can find Tim on Twitter at TimRobertson56. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim. And just when you thought it was safe to get into the show... <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> one one more person has signed up to support Standard Orbit, Trek FM's technical director, quality control specialist, co-host of Earl Grey, a man of many talents, Richard Marquez. Welcome to Standard Orbit, man. We have we have a lot of fun talking uh, about each other's podcasts, on each other's podcasts. <laughs> we love throwing shade to each other. It's it's all in good fun uh, between here, here us at... Uh, us here, here us at... Us here at Standard Orbit and you guys over there at Earl Grey. And uh, so it's, it's very humbling to have uh, you join our team, Richard. Yeah, he's a, he's a good resource. And uh, I, I, I wonder how his teammates feel about him jumping over to this crew, even <laughs> if he's not talking on it, you know. But uh, interesting. But I think that's fun. So, Renee, Norm, Aaron, Nick, Tim, and Richard, you know, you all make this show a reality. And it, it's very humbling for us. And, and we, we really sincerely thank you all for you know, putting your hard-earned money, your time, your effort into to helping make this show, uh, uh, you know, the success that it is. And we thank you from uh, the bottom of our hearts. Six associate producers, that is huge. We are very humbled, and we thank you all again so much. Absolutely. Okay, Ken, our topic is coming up right after this letter from Brad Alexander. <laughs> We're going to keep you, keep teasing that carrot right in front of you, guys. Uh, but it's coming. But uh, Brad wrote us a great email, and here's what he had to say. What I wanted to comment on is my annoyance with Trek registry numbers. Unless I am mistaken, the Enterprise is the only documented ship with the bloody A, B, C, or D. That irritates me. Using the Navy as an example, in fact, using the Enterprise, as you pointed out in your show comparing Starfleet to the Navy, the Enterprise was CV-6, her follow-on was CVN-65, and her follow-on will be CVN-80, no bloody A, B, C, or D. The other thing is what they did with the Defiant. I'm referring to Cisco's Defiant from Deep Space Nine, not the one from the Tholian web uh, in the original series. Uh, she was destroyed, and they provided the Sao Paulo, which was then renamed the Defiant and given her old registry number NX74205. Or maybe they updated it to NCC. No, I don't think they did. <laughs> uh, but uh, Brad goes on to say, but considering what NCC stands for, which is a great trivia question, by the way, if you want me to tell you, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what NCC stands for, Ken? I heard it was Naval Construction Contract is one of the things I read in the technical manual. But I also know that when um, Matt Jeffries was putting it together, that NCC, uh, it, you, you see a lot of NCs or you see different codes on aircraft, which represents, I think, the country of origin 
and a couple of other things, and that was generally what it was using for used for. But naval construction contract, I think, has be, became kind of the um, I don't know if it, it's if it's part of the canon or not, but I, I do remember seeing that in a couple of the technical manuals. Yeah, Brad goes on to say, you know, basically just pointing out that this doesn't make sense to have the same registry number for an NX and an NCC. And then he goes on to ask us, what are your opinions on this? I know it is probably partially due to production, in the case of Cisco's Defiant, not wanting to relabel the Defiant model with two episodes left. <laughs> but don't Mariners consider renaming a ship bad luck for her and her crew? Also, regarding the length of time the ships are around, did you notice that with all the ships like the Oberth class from Star Trek Three to TNG, the Miranda class from Star Trek Two through Deep Space Nine, and so forth? So my question was, why don't you ever see any Constitution or Constitution refit ships? John Champion and the Mission Log Podcast, I think, hit the nail on the head when he said that the reason that the Enterprise refits were not seen in later shows, including TNG, is that that was Kirk's ship, and it would have a negative impact on viewers. In my opinion, it would have cheapened the death of the Enterprise. So what thinks you? Well, thanks for that email, Brad. And I'll, uh, Ken, you're the you're the naval man here. I'll let you start chiming in on some of his some of his questions. Sure. First of all, attention on deck. So everybody, I- unless you're driving, you should be standing at attention right now. <laughs> the senior chief is speaking, guys. The senior chief is speaking, right? So now everybody's turned down their radio saying, when is Zach coming back on? <laughs> uh, anyway, so it, it, listen, the, um, the it is true. Mariners do consider renaming a ship to be bad luck, going back to that for her and her crew. that That's, that's true. Uh, it used to be bad luck to have women on ships back in the day. So I think there's been a couple of traditions that rightfully have been changed and luck has not been impacted. But, you know, it's funny that you say uh, that that Brad asks a question. Uh, we're talking a little Deep Space Nine here, changing the Sao Paulo back to, to the Defiant. You know, I, I remember when they when they came out with Star Trek Four and the Enterprise A came to fruition, and there was a lot of rumors about that ship being another name, and then they changed the name and all that other stuff. And I always took it as it was just a brand new ship, and you know, because it didn't run right at all in Star Trek Five, and that that Enterprise was the original name. Now it is strange that. Um, and I do remember reading somewhere that Gene Roddenberry himself said no other ship would have the A, B, C, or D. That was strictly for the Enterprise. I think it was in respect for what that original Enterprise crew did, or let's say the Captain Kirk's crew did, and that's where they came up with that, and and that's why you don't see it anyplace else. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to do it. Now, for the and for the aircraft carriers that he's talking about, he's right. It has nothing to do with the name. It has to do with the aircraft carrier hull that's been built. So the first Enterprise was the sixth one built, the second one was the 65th, and the next one will be the 80th. So I think I've hit that. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you take on the, uh, the TNG and, and refit Enterprise question there. Well, originally in the battle, uh, the episode where we find Picard's old ship, the Stargazer, the, the Constellation-class Stargazer, which I really like that design, but initially, they had planned for it to be a Constitution-class ship, and they were going to use stock footage from the Star Trek movies, as they were, as they did a lot in the early couple seasons of TNG. But they ultimately decided, you know what? That's first of all, it's I might confuse people because you know people are going to assume, oh, is this is this the old Enterprise? I, I don't understand. It's the you know it was the eighties, right? It was a different time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 Star Trek fans are stupid. Remember, don't forget that. <laughs> I mean, come on. I, I mean, I can't stand when they do things like that. Oh, it will confuse people. It'll confuse people. Really? Really? 
the other factor being uh, that they just, much like you were saying, you know, respecting the Enterprise, keeping it separate, and John Champion's point as well on Mission Log, is they, they wanted to, to not dilute the brand, as it were, right? It's the same reason that you don't see a TV show of, of Batman or Superman on the air right now, right? You, uh, you, you might get these you know, prequel or sequel shows, uh, but you don't see a full-on Batman or Superman show. You want to save like the hero in this prime for the movies, much like they're thinking, oh, at this point, you know, this is 1987, you know, the, the original series movies, we're still in the middle of them, right? We got two more left to go. So they want to save that for, you know, the big screen for the motion picture. And that's some of the thinking behind that. And, you know, bit of trivia there in the battle, when when they first see the Stargazer come on the view screen, you see uh, Jordy, who who was not the chief engineer in the first season, you know, he's, a, he's at the, uh, the con station. He says, it's a Constellation class ship. But if you read his lips, he says Constitution, because even filming the episode, they thought they were going to go with the Constitution class design. They didn't change that until, you know, post-production, and he has to, you know, say Constellation. That's probably why they picked uh, a Constellation class, because it looks kind of enough like Constitution, where if you're not really paying attention, <laughs> that uh, his lips matches uh, matches words there. But that's a, that's a little bit of trivia on uh, using or not using the uh, Constitution class refit in uh the next generation and then in universe wise i'll just say this i feel like uh you know the mirandas and the excelsior classes they all came out like in the 2270s or 2280s so you know they have a good 100 years left on them but let's not forget the constitution class ships were around from like the 2240s they're already old and you know star trek three time they were talking about we got to retire this thing it's old so yeah it, it i don't i don't see an issue with it not surviving you know 100 years plus later because it's an older design so those are my thoughts. I thought the Miranda class was supposed to be older than the refit Enterprise. You know, well the refit, they're, all the refits Enterprise are just you know they're they all started as Constitution class ships, presumably. Right. So they're all 20, 30, 40 years old by the time they get refit anyway. So you got to add that on. Like I, you know, it's like the speedometer in your car. Right? You don't you don't reset it. You know, you can detail your car and make it all nice and all that, but the speedometer keeps going up. I mean, that's that's the way I see it. Hmm, I don't know. All the engines are new. I mean, they're brand spanking new. So it's a practically new enterprise. It's all yeah, five percent, <laughs> right? Anyway, I, I see where you're going. It, it, these are fun things. These we really get geek going on these. Clearly, things. yeah, <laughs> it's it's fun, you know. And then you start getting into all the other episodes. And, ah, stay in your lane. Yeah, we're just like, yep, yep, yep. Kiss this, right? Move on. We do what we want. Anyway, <laughs> so good tangents there. I think that. Um, very very good topics to to talk about uh in, in the future and you know we we love talking about the ships i think it would be a good a good discussion maybe to have with some of the earl gray team because the reference the reverence that they show the enterprise by not showing it in the episodes they certainly didn't do that in tng which i understand in universe doesn't make a lot of sense there's going to be other galaxy class ships but uh they certainly had no problem blowing those things up either in deep space 9 anyway all right so are we ready to move on? Yes, our topic is coming up now. <laughs> uh, so we, we thought it'd be fun to put ourselves in Harv Bennett's shoes back in you know 1980-ish uh, when he was tasked with uh, continuing on the Star Trek movie franchise. And as legend has it, and it's not a legend, I mean, it's a fact, but you know, part of Star Trek lore uh, is he sat down and he watched all 79 episodes of the original series uh, you know, to get a feel for the show, because he wasn't that familiar with it, uh, but also to kind of identify possible, you know, um, story ideas they could spring off into a motion picture. And famously, he picked Space Seed, The Wrath of Khan, and there it is. 
So our thought was, what if he would have picked something else, right? Not necessarily replacing Rathacon, but like what, what if the same process had, had taken place and for whatever reason they, they didn't go with Rathacon, like Cardo Montalban wasn't available or just some other episode kind of struck his fancy more than Space Seed. So, I mean, there's 79 of them. So you have 78 other choices. <laughs> and we thought, you know, we'd each pick three that we thought, you know, looking back at it, if we're sitting there in that screening room with Harv Bennett, like, you know what, this one, there's some potential here. That's right. And I thought it was a very clever idea. The 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 notion that there's 79 episodes out there to, to choose from. He chose a great one, obviously, and the rest is history, right? Uh, you know, arguably the best Star Trek ever made was The Wrath of Khan. You know, hopefully Norm didn't listen too closely to that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, arguably. And and it was great. And And so now that you go back and you look at those other episodes, if there were others that they could choose from. And keeping in mind that, you know, off mic we talked about this, there's been a lot of sequels in novels and comic books and things like that. So it's tough to kind of pick through these where some of these things have already been touched and no doubt there'll be references to probably the episodes that we choose and they'll go, oh, they did do a sequel to that in this novel, but I guess we'll see. So without further ado, Zach, are you ready to, 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 to tell us what your number three is? Yeah, so my number three would be The Menagerie. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite episodes of the original series. Uh, it's a two-parter, so it was almost a movie of its own right. Uh, and it just incorporated a lot of Star Trek history uh, using the original pilot of the cage. So there's already a, a deep mythology there, even going back before the original series. And, you know, my thought was, for whatever reason, maybe there's a distress signal or something along those lines. Of, you know, that's probably what it is, right? And the Enterprise goes to Talos for uh, to check on Captain Pike. They beam down on the planet... And everything's kind of, well, you know, obviously Talos 4 is kind of a wasteland, but they go beneath the surface, and everything there is just chaos. You have, you know, because uh, an interesting point about the Menagerie in the cage that wasn't really dwelled on very much was they have all these other aliens in their captivity as well, right? We see hints of, like, a bird man and an ape man and stuff like that, and they mentioned that none of their other subjects had, had... you know, shown what they needed to take over their planet. So I'm thinking, okay, what if they beam down and it's a very hostile environment, like you got monsters popping out left and right of other aliens that are attacking them. So you have an, a, just an interesting collection of of new creatures that you, you can find. Uh, and then eventually, you know, you get to, obviously, Jeffrey Hunter had passed away at this time. And, I, you know, we're not doing some, like, alternate what-if scenario. So you can't have Captain Pike because, it, you know, even though Sean Kinney replaced him, uh, if you're going to have restored Captain Pike, as we saw at the end of Menagerie, it'd have to be Jeffrey Hunter, right? So uh, we just uh, it would it would be a deal where you wouldn't you wouldn't even see Jeffrey Hunter or Susan Oliver as uh, Captain Pike and and Vina, like they they would have died at this point. Maybe they have a child at this point. You know, maybe maybe he's learned the secrets of the Telogians and causing some mischief. You know, maybe that's why he's doing the crazy things he does because he doesn't have that parental guidance. You know, and and I and I think you know I was trying to think about this, and I know there was a comic book story kind of along these lines. Uh, I don't. Star Trek has been through so many comic publishers. I don't know if it was DC or, or Marvel or whoever. Right? It was. It was back in the you know '90s days. Uh, but it was like Spock returns to Talos IV, and there's a similar situation there. Uh, and that's what kind of inspired me to have this idea. But I, I was thinking about the 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 Twazin episode. It's a good life where you have a little bully mummy, and he's the he's the child with all the incredible powers, and he's doing all these. He's just doing what a child does. He's not being malicious about it. But you know, when you're a kid, you're still forming your concepts of right or wrong. So that would add to some of the chaos of what everybody encounters here with sure. uh, with Talos IV. Yeah, yeah, it's got that. Uh, um... I don't know, like a, a Charlie X piece of it. You know, I yeah. mean, if you think about it, you could combine that. You could combine elements of of the Menagerie and Charlie X easily. And, and you know, uh, 
you could even make an origin story out of that stuff there's a lot i feel like there's a lot of potential there you could do the whole what is illusion what is reality obviously you know they they cover that pretty well in the original series but you know on a big screen budget even though the the budget for uh you know post motion picture was lower it's still a lot higher than anything we saw in the original series so you can really take advantage of you can you can have any environment basically you can have kirk fight you know anything you bring the gorn back right that's right we had fun talking about the gorn last week bring you know so so bring back some interesting stuff like that reliving past memories maybe but also experiencing new exciting things and the ultimate resolution be everybody lives happily ever after right and 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 there wouldn't be necessarily a villain but I, i do think the antagonist would be pike and venus son because i think that that would be the catalyst for the plot to take place so that that's my thinking for a sequel movie to the menagerie that's yeah, pretty clever i like that it's like that it's just, i love the imagination you know because you I, I and i could see where this was going and as you're saying it i could see it in my mind's eye going okay that's that that would be a nice premise a good outline and uh, i just think they could build from that very good Okay, my first one, or my number three, first of three, is Who Mourns for Adonais? And what I was thinking about with this was it wouldn't be a direct pickup with Apollo, and I know that there was something done on on one of the new Star Trek. Right, Star Trek Continues, right? Star Trek Continues, yeah. The Pilgrim episode, I think it was. Pilgrim of Eternity. Yeah, see, I remember these things sort of, kind of. (laughs) But I wasn't thinking of a sequel in that form. What I was thinking about, I guess lately there's been awful lot of marvel and uh, other movies that you know thor that kind of deal with gods or demigods and you know star trek obviously when it deals with a god never winds up being a god and even adonais has some issues but what if they find the rest of the uh the, the those gods or those 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 beings that existed in Greek mythology back all those years ago, you know, actually being true. And and, and we're dealing that with them many in much in the same light that, uh, you know, the, uh, the the superheroes are dealing with them today. You know, they're, they're gaining power. They have these abilities. Uh, they could be a real threat or they could find a planet that is being dominated by them. And knowing that they came from Earth, do they allow it to happen? Do they do they interfere? I was not thinking along the lines where, you know, we, we saw the Enterprise get caught by the right hand, so now the left hand gets it from behind or something, and we start all over again. I was thinking going down that, that whole range of, okay, what what's making these aliens tick? How can we ensure that um, if they've enslaved a planet that they could be released? And if they had bigger, I guess, goals or objectives to take on more territory or find their way back to Earth, you know, to go back to where it all began, I think opens up some possibilities. And like I said, it seems to be something, whether you're watching Guardian of of the Galaxy or other things where you're dealing with these types of beings, that it would kind of fit with the genre that we have a lot of today. And uh, that's my that's my third choice. Well, Ancient Aliens is very popular, and uh, if you break it down, that's what Who Mourns for Adonis is. Uh, you know, Greek gods are actually you know extraterrestrials that come to Earth and influence society. So, so are you thinking that the Enterprise would come across another planet like under control of one of these other gods? And I was thinking maybe, maybe, maybe not just one, but many, and you know, and seeing a a group of people that are enslaved, and you have the whole, you know question mark around the prime directive because it's an outside influence 
but is it their destiny like earth had to deal with it you know if you wanted to 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 claim it was a reality back then and you know at the same time you, you know um maybe catching a plot that this is this is just a, a starting block for them to come back towards Earth. And, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be an Earth in jeopardy, but it could be one of those, you know, hey, if this domino falls, another one does, and we have to stop it here type of thing. Have you ever watched Ancient Aliens, the show on uh, the History Channel? No. It's, I don't think you would like it, Ken, but it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, if, if anybody ever, I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners watch this show, and this thought might have crossed your mind as well, but it's, it's often crossed my mind. When you're watching the show, the the narrator guy right he mm-hmm. says the phrase ancient astronaut theorists believe like he says that so many times in an episode if you want to have a drinking game take a shot every time the guy says that you will be passed out before the episode is over i i promise you so you know if it's a slow weekend it's a rainy day just want to have some fun with netflix and a bottle of your beverage of choice there's a fun idea for you guys out there but anyway there you go <laughs> ancient aliens everybody <laughs> so uh my my number two choice uh would be and this might be a little obvious but i picked the doomsday machine mm-hmm. you know looking through the original series episodes yes there are certain characters you might want to revisit or there are certain scenarios that say oh well you know if they, if they visited this planet x amount of years later this might be an interesting story but the doomsday machine is actually one of the few that they, they end on the question you know spock and kirk are talking on the bridge after it's all said and done and spock says well i wonder if there's any more of these roaming the universe and kirk's like oh i found the one quite sufficient <laughs> and it's, it's like hey you're kind of laughing off quite a quite a serious situation there kirk but um that's what the original series was prone to do but i feel like that plants the seed for the space seed if you will uh, mm-hmm. for another story now obviously they know how to defeat it but you know part of the and this is something that i don't know if it's developed in fanon or was written in like a novel somewhere you know, i know peter david wrote his sequel novel vendetta and it was like tying it to the borg and all that but we're talking you know we're putting ourselves in the 80s here we're not we're not concerning ourselves with later sure. uh, sequels and stuff like that so Again, I don't know if it was fanon or actually in the original script or something, but the actual Doomsday Machine itself, it had gone around space for so long that it had been battered down and, you know, smoothed out and, you know, it was supposed to be a lot more to it than just the, the conical shape that, that we see. Uh, the windsock dipped in cement, I believe, is how they accomplished that special effect. Uh, so <laughs> what what if they came across one that wasn't so beat up, right? Like it was more at the top of its game and the same... They think they're clever and they, they try the same thing to defeat it and it doesn't work. Like, oh, God, what do we got to do now, right? So they got to use their ingenuity. And would this be on a direct course for Earth? No, I hate that trope. So, but at the same time, you think about generations. It's like, oh, no, we have to save Viridian 3. Like, well, who cares about Viridian 3? So I, you get why they they put these things on a, you know, a direct path to Earth. So I'm not sure what, where I would have it go or, or exactly where they would encounter it, but... A more advanced, a less beaten down version of the Doomsday Machine, of the Planet Killer, uh, would be encountered by the Enterprise. They would try to defeat it like they did last time. It wouldn't work, so they'd have to use their ingenuity to figure something else out. And maybe maybe along the way they have to team up with like the Romulans or the Klingons, to, you know, uh, and they can have a lesson about working together. Because, again, you, you want it to be about something. You don't want it to be, just be the same thing over again and one of the great things about the Doomsday machine was the character of commodore decker and the, the constellation and but obviously that's that story has been told and you don't want to repeat that so you need a new element so that's why i'm saying you bring in an alien race and again i go to the romulans and the klingons because those are like the alien races of the original series and the team work together they find a way to defeat the planet killer 
gaining mutual respect for each other sure. along the way. Yeah, interesting. I uh, I thought about that. Uh, I, I didn't pick it, but I thought about it. And what I was thinking about at the time was a combination of Enterprise Incident and Doomsday Machine, that the Romulans found one and were rebuilding it, reprogramming it, and ready to set it loose <laughs> on the Federation. Mm. That was my thought. So, oh, that's a cool. That's another angle. I like yeah, that. but you know, yours is yours is more friendly. You know, we're Romulans. We're friends. We're gonna <laughs> get together. We're gonna be teamwork. And uh, and I'm like, uh, no, we're gonna we're gonna go and and see if we can if we can stop them. Obviously, they don't make it in time, so the thing does some damage. Or, you know, the the Romulans. Here's a good idea. The Romulans get this thing running, but it doesn't program the way they want it to, and it starts heading back towards Romulus or something like that. And then the Federation, well, you're going to kill us, but now we'll save you. And then, you know, new new alliances start. They go back to war with the Klingons, so we have a bad villain. It's great. I, I see all kinds of possibilities here. <laughs> no, that's good. See, that's why these back-and-forth writing room sessions pay off, Ken. You know, that's you right. Just, one idea springs another idea and another idea after yeah. that. You know, I did this on Saturday morning uh, trek with with Aaron and uh, Brandon Shea once. We, we <laughs> I was like, you really want me on? I don't know if we can be clever. And we actually did come up with a sequel for Alternative Factor. But that's exactly what that podcast was. A bunch of ping-ponging ball back and forth until we came up with a concept that seemed to work. So... All right. No, that's a good one, Zach. I think that would be fun, though. I mean, especially with, with better technologies and special effects, that would be a real fun episode to do. Okay. The um, My number two uh, is a sequel to Court Martial. And again, I'm thinking more theme than, than a direct sequel. So you have, you know, Ben Finney, you have his daughter. You know, Ben Finney um, was still alive at the end of that. Uh, there could have been, you know, some more, some more to um, to glean from that story, perhaps, or uh, a, a court martial type of, you know, you take a Star Trek uh, six element who done it. Uh, Kirk is framed for murder or framed for something like he was in um, in the original court martial, and you know, you you make it up like a uh, Star Trek versus you know Star Trek and Perry Mason combination. And just, you know, not so much a, a big bad ship or a big bad villain, but uh, somebody out there that, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't like Kirk. Or does, it could be another crew member. It could be even Spock, for that matter, where, where somebody's trying to do something bad and frame the crew. And they have to come up with a clever way of, um, you know, either through keen intellect or through another adventure and, and finding clues and all that type of thing that could involve some some space travel and some searches of other planets to to make it all come to light. So I I kind of enjoy uh, those those mysteries a little bit. Those the combination who done it that can be put in a science fiction realm and have fun with it. I know it's been done a few times, but uh, I I really did enjoy that episode and. You know, hey, I, I don't know what the monster maroon dress uniforms would look like, or if they had them, but um, those dress uniforms enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, you saw, you kind of saw, saw in Star Trek Six where a lot of them were wearing like ribbons and you know outlines of medals and things. I it was just different. So anyway, I just I just thought conceptually that that could be a, a decent start. You know, it could be a revenge thing, which maybe that's a trope that's been used. Or maybe it could be, you know, a complete misdirection and, you know, some some other plot that is discovered in the midst of investigating this court case. So, you know, and maybe uh, maybe you have the space version of Colonel Jessup and, 
you can't handle the truth. We'll see. That's a good suggestion, Ken. I think, you know, as we've just talked about previously on Standard Orbit, the original series movies are all very different, right? Much like the original series episodes are all very different. And I think the cast and, you know, the, the storytelling lends itself to these different approaches. You can have a big, you know, planet killer versus the Enterprise in one movie. You can have a, a courtroom drama in the next movie, and it would right. totally work. So it's not out of the realm of, of what they would do with the original series movies anyway to have these different types of stories. So I think something like that kind of mixes it up and doesn't make it an Earth is in jeopardy, right? Let's, let's put that aside and make it more personal stakes. Yeah, you know, sometimes, too, I, I really enjoy, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of technobabble, but I do like substantive discussion and, and something that can pull you in, right? I don't know if you're a Tarantino fan, but some of the things that, that he comes up with is just, it's mind-blowing to me that he can be such an expert on, on certain things, and, and you can listen to him go... Uh, and in in Star Trek, when that when that happens, I enjoy it. You know, when when they're talking about a theme or an emo- it, you know, like I said, if they stay out of the techno babble where it's just we're going to science our way out of this with pseudoscience and talk about it for twenty minutes, then it's just filler. But if they're talking about things that talk uh, that that speak to what the Federation about, what what the Federation's about, what honor and service is about, friendship is about, all those things that are Star Trek. These are the types of episodes that a lot of times that that can be brought out of and enjoyed. So that's my thought process. Awesome. Well, my number one would be City on the Edge of Forever. Again, going back to the heavy hitters, but I just feel like there's so much potential there to use the Guardian of Forever. Now they'd have to work something out with Harlan Ellison (laughs) for the rights. But hey, they got it for the animated series. I'm sure they could get it for a movie. Now this this this. (laughs) Using the Guardian of Forever was rumored and scripted so many times over the years. Uh, you know, the Klingons were going to use it to go back in time, and, and the crew had to follow him and, and like save Kennedy, but then kill Kennedy. And it was Gene Roddenberry seemed to be obsessed with that idea for a few years. Uh, and in Star Trek: The Next Generation, they were going to use it. That, and then the original inception of the episode Yesterday's Enterprise, they were going to uh, use it. Uh, Spock's father, Sarek, was going to go back in time and have to take the place of Surak and become the the you know. The, originator of Vulcan logic so I mean there's so many suggested ideas over the years to revisit the Guardian Forever and they never did and I feel like I would like to see one of those uh, realized because it's such a cool concept of this time portal that can take you any anywhere in any time uh, and to you know and, and there's been other you know there's again there's been so many sequel ideas and stories and fan films and, and fiction about this past um, in the past you know 30 40 50 years now but much like you were saying, Ken, about, you know, having the Klingons or Romulans find a, a planet killer, you know, I think, you know, to having an, an alien race, maybe a new alien race, maybe one that we're not familiar with before, right, uh, takes over the Garden Forever for their own purposes, and the crew has to go back in time to stop them. Uh, you know, it, it does, it's kind of like First Contact, but not quite the same. Again, we're trying to put ourselves back in the 80s, and I just think, uh, you know, many such journeys are possible. Let this be your gateway, right? That's another episode that ends with the promise of more adventures uh, through that mechanism that are never visited again at least on screen and i'm not sure what the crisis would be i'm not i'm not sure like like who sets it off or how the enterprise finds out maybe you know did they keep the guardian forever i feel like if if they kept it uh, a secret which they would want to do right they don't they don't want to broadcast it to the to to the quadrants that uh hey there's a time portal on this planet right the enterprise crew has unique access because they've been there before and they're authorized to go there right uh so maybe that's how they get inserted into the plot and that's why you know they're not quote-unquote the only ship in the quadrant you know, as, as they often are uh, in the movies and TV show, too, to be honest. But, you know, they have, because of their history there, that's the reason they are 
uh, put in the situation to correct the problem of you know whatever might be going on with the guardian of forever so those are my thoughts on that yeah i I think that's a a great concept zach because as you were talking about it and it's it's utilization i mean the the number of plots that could be used with this device is is huge and and i was one of the first things that popped in my head i'm not sure why was ah this is how george kirk could be in star trek 4 you know, I mean, it's uh, the the the, uh, the 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 ideas are, are are limitless. You know, so uh, one, I know that the original city on the edge of forever. If they were to take that that whole script, and I have to, you know, be very clear, I've never read the whole thing. Uh, you know, Harv Ellison's uh, total view. I I know it was much more uh, bigger, more dramatic, much more epic. I guess, uh, in scope and scale. So I guess you could look at it that way and you could almost do a remake or just to what exactly you were saying. They, um, you know, there are so many things that could be tripped up in history. You could do, you know, the fish out of water. You could, you know, you could make it very serious. Uh, and yeah, you could, you could have the aliens coming to mess with it, or you might have, the, might be a race to destroy it. Who knows? But it, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I think that, uh, uh, putting some time and effort into it, you could come up with, you know, five or six hundred different great plot lines to use with the Guardian of Forever. So I think that's a, a very good choice. And it'd be one I'd really like to see them do. I really would. And I was really trying to think of, of what would make, you know, the Guardian of Forever story different than your standard, oh, they went back in time, something's wrong, we have to fix it. I think if you introduce a lot of supporting characters, you know, you have guest stars, if you will, in the movie, that you grow invested in and they have to go on this adventure with the Enterprise crew, like you have to recruit people's help to quote-unquote fix the future. Uh, But then you realize that once they fix the future, these people's lives are going to either be erased or going to be changed fundamentally. And that that leaves a pinging in your heart, right? Because one of my my favorite episodes of all of Star Trek is Children of Time from Deep Space Nine. And that episode hits you in the gut because you have grown to love these people and this planet and this community. And even and they went over the, the the crew the defiant like they're they're gonna escape the defiant says no these people need to exist we're going to make the sacrifice and we're gonna crash uh, and then of course Odo saves the day they don't crash they are erased from existence and it's like wow that is didn't expect that right uh, it's usually all tied up in a nice bow uh, because I mean you can't even wrap your mind around that like it's one thing to to know someone and and you know to have them pass away or, or leave your life but. To, to to have that person just never have existed at all or their lives have totally changed, that's crazy. And this is some high-concept stuff that I, I think Star Trek can delve into more if we're going to start playing with alternate universes and alternate timelines. You don't really think about the ramifications when, okay, hey, we're going to jump back through the portal. Who are you leaving behind and what effect are your actions having on them? And I think that's something they could dive into to add another angle to the whole fixing history that we see so often in Star Trek that we don't often get to uh, get to look at. Oh, I agree, Zach. I, I think that's that's one element that's been missing from. You, you could almost think of all the different Star Trek movies themselves. They're they're very good, and and I and I enjoy almost all of them. I really do. But when you watch some other some other you know like Inception or um, so, you know some some other unbelievably well crafted out. Um, plot lines that could really pull on the heartstrings, uh, you know, and and you can see there's a lot of movies that are based on a lot of great Star Trek TV shows that do do that well. Man, I'd love to see them pull it into the movie so that we can even get drawn in more in the wonder and awe 
of what we could get out of the movies with the big budget Star Trek because that's that's where they could really take off. And I think it's it's an element that they've they've hit on, but they haven't driven it home like they've been able to do on the TV shows. That's just me. Okay. Well, my number one is I, I hope this would be a good surprise for people because it was one of the ones that really struck me as I was going through the list of episodes. And that's Obsession. It's not a widely talked about episode. It's, uh, I think it's, it's a wonderful episode. It could be a, a great sequel and it doesn't mean that Kirk has to go back and be obsessive and try to sacrifice, you know, in, in un, unwillingly or um, subconsciously, you know, start start killing his crew or putting his ship in danger. But that creature, that 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 honey sweet smelling cloud, that creates a lot of havoc and devastation. What if this cloud isn't just one? But many. What if it's you know it's 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 a race to understand. Is this thing intelligent? You know, we know that it, it came back and it attacked the Enterprise, um, but is it is it like um, just looking for a food source? Uh, is it something where between battles they're trying to communicate and find a way to coexist? Uh, Kirk's memory of what happened to his crew members on the Farragut and um, what happened to his members of the crew on the Enterprise, you know, other than Spock giving it a bad taste in its mouth, right, because of its copper-based blood. But I, I think that there's a range of things that could be done. And you know what? It's not the big bad ship. It's not um, necessarily anything that, uh, you know, may be um, evil. It just could be misunderstood. And, you know, to a degree, I realized TNG took this concept and put it in place with the crystalline entity. They, they, they you know, they, they took this this episode and, you know, they, they, they put the, they had a, they had a revenge episode just like they did with Obsession, just using, uh, I forget her name now, but whose son perished and, you know. Right, Silicon Avatar, which I actually really liked that episode. It was a great episode. talk about it a lot, but I just find Picard's statement on it has every right to exist just as much as we do, you know. That's right. And, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm sure that that's kind of influenced my decision here that I think Obsession done correctly, it doesn't have to mirror the original exception, but you've got, I think, um, a whole world to work in, and you could go in any number of directions trying to figure out how they would solve this issue. There could be a lot of action as well as a lot of contemplation, and you know, just and just getting back to that ethical dilemma. You know, are we are we taking out something that is truly a threat? Uh, could it could it sustain if there were communications and and left to a world where um, you know it it fed. Uh, you know, or is it, you know, the reason that this thing travels from planet to planet is wherever it was from originally, it has taken out all of its food source. And you could talk about food chain, you could talk about evolution, you could talk about a lot of things. uh, And you could also talk about, you know, how do you how do you fight, you know, a misty cloud that can penetrate the hull of your ship and break through shields and everything else. I, I, um, I think this could be a real fun one to do, and you could snazz up that that cloud, right? Just like they did with the Mutara Nebula, in different colors, different, um, you know, different ways. Especially uh, decent special effects when when people are put in danger or or are taken out by this creature. So, that's my number one obsession. Yeah, you zeroed in on a couple of very personal stories for Kirk there. Can kind of took the mm-hmm. a different approach than what the obvious would be, I would say. And you know, and I try to do. 
I picked a couple of um, more obvious episodes to have sequels to, but at the same time, you know, we're trying to we're trying to keep the spirit of the original series and the spirit of Star Trek, and not, hey man, it'd be great to have a great space battle. Whoa, like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are great, and you could do that with lots of other concepts here. But you know, every like, I know Roddenberry used to say this, right? Like, that's a great story, but what's it about? Right. right? And that's what, like, what is it about? I think yours is about examining, like, okay, well, the, this is this is a living thing. It's not, you know, we have to we have to kick that into account. It's just doing what it does, and does it not have the right to do that because now we're around, right? Because you know, th- those are those are high concept things to talk about, and you know, and then you know, talk about the, the doomsday machine. You know, you, you want to have other people either learning to work together when they were originally trying to work against each other, stuff like that. Those are those are the threads of Star Trek that you, you would try to purvey. Uh, convey in all the movies and i feel like you know the original series movies uh th- there's a level to that and everything yes wrath of Khan's a revenge story but there's so much more to it than that uh and that's and that's what i think a lot of the later films um you know tng and you know even a little bits it sneaks into the kelvin timeline let's let's be let's be honest here but they uh they take the big flashy stuff from wrath of Khan, but they forget all of the like personal stakes and thematic concepts underneath it they forget all that and they just say oh yeah space battles and revenge let's let's do it right and that's what separates the best star trek stories from the rest of the pack i agree i and i'm with you there i i think when i think back to the episodes that i really enjoy you take even a balance of terror it isn't the space battles that i enjoy it's the cat and mouse um the political ramifications of it it's not a revenge story at all right it's um it's a test it's it's poking the bear and see if the bear's going to strike back uh it's a game of wits there's there's so many things going on between the two commanders how they think how they work prejudice uh that's what star trek does best the the battle elements um you know some of it's so hokey it's it's hard to take and you know that's a great example for me has always been i'm jumping over the wall for a second you know, best of both worlds. It's a good episode. I, episodes. I, I enjoyed it. I remember when it first took off. Family was a hundred times better to me. I'd watch Family ten times to one over watching Best of Both Worlds or Inner Light. Those are the types of things that interest me. And I do enjoy the action adventure pieces of it. I truly do. But I, I love seeing um, the characters. And that's why Wrath of Khan works. Because... Kirk is dealing with, you know, his own mortality. He's coming towards the end of his career. He's he's trying to find himself. Um, you know, you've you've got Spock, who's the captain. You've got you've got this guy that isn't just trying to get his revenge on Kirk, but he's going back to his original mission too. He's just being his his obsession is taking away from his true objective, which is, you know, conquering and taking over. Now he's got the ultimate weapon to do it with. So. You're right, Zach. There's there's a lot there that um, that can be pulled from the episodes that we've talked about uh, to make it uh, that successful mix of good Star Trek action, good Star Trek intellect, um, the philosophy of the Federation, the the um, the minds of these crew, these characters we love, giving them something to do, which is so important, right? And um, and that's one thing too. I think for all these different, uh, all six that we picked, and we didn't pick any doubles, which is interesting. Um, that I'm sure that if if you and I were writing it, every single character would have their special place and moment in time in this, right? The right the right plot lines with some really thorough writing. Yeah, it, it's funny too. I, I bet you with any of these concepts, 
we could go for hours, right? And we could yeah. and we could do one per episode. Yeah, you, you really could. And, and that, but that's I think that's how a lot of these things work, right? You start off with a concept, and in Star Trek Two is a great example of that as well, because yes, Harv Bennett figured out what he wanted to drive from, but then he came up with these other elements. I think with John Sowers about the Genesis device. They needed Kurt, uh, Spock to die, excuse me, because they, they thought he wanted to. Spock must die. Right. But they couldn't make it work. They, they, they had all these elements and pieces, but it took Nick Meyer to come in and put the whole mosaic together so that it flowed better, uh, rewrote the way the character spoke, things along those lines. Uh, and I think that's kind of a misnomer because a lot of people say, you know, Nick Meyer wrote Star Trek II in 48 hours. No, he rewrote it. He rewrote it, right? I think the, right. the plot concepts were all were all out there, and I don't think Jack Sowards, John B. Sowards, is that or is it Jack? B. Jack B. Sowards. Jack B. Sowards. He he doesn't get a lot of um, notoriety at all, and I do believe he came back and wrote a Next Generation. He episode. wrote Where Silence Has Lease, one of my favorite episodes of the second season of Next Gen. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy was talented, and and that's what I mean. I'm sure him and uh, and Harv Bennett put a lot of effort into it. And it's just, like I said, it just wasn't coming together. You have another person comes in from the outside and goes, well, wait a minute. If you put this piece here and put this piece here and, you know, we add this dialogue and, you know, you, you throw in all those references like like Nick Meyer does to um, to literature, you know, Tales of Two Cities and throwing in different quotes from different famous um, playwrights and authors, you know, he, he spiced it up. But that's exactly what would happen with any of these concepts we just spoke about. Yeah, if if this was to come to fruition, if we really wanted to sketch this out, if um, if there's going to be a novel, a Star Trek novel made by uh, Zach Moore and Ken Tripp, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be flushed it's gonna out. Be awesome. It's gonna, well, it will be awesome. <laughs> and you know what? We'll do the audio book right here on Standard Orbit. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, man. That's that'll only be sixty episodes, and we'll lose two thirds of our audience. But damn it, we're going to have fun. Chapter uh, thirty-seven. <laughs> man, we can. Forget coming up with new concepts every week. Let's just have a chapter by chapter audio adventure. <laughs> oh, good God! Don't worry, Zach folks. and Ken's bogus journey. Yeah, and it would be that too. Yep. But at any rate, you know where I'm going with this. I think that uh, it's 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 fun to have the creative flow, uh, creative juices flowing. And I think for our folks in the Babel conference, you know, I know all of you have great opinions, great insights. Give us some of your ideas. How would you flush some of the things that we've talked about, but what would be some of your good uh, sequel possibilities? Because, you know, I think that 79 episodes gives you a lot of opportunity. And I know it's not 79 great episodes, but you could take an episode where it didn't take off. But if it was rewritten, restructured, or there was a plot element that could have been executed better, there's no reason why you couldn't make it a movie. Right and and improve it, except for Cat's Paw. But otherwise, you could. That's how I look at. It. What's the, what's that line from Futurama? You know, Star Trek seventy nine episodes, about thirty good ones. <laughs> which, 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 if that had come from somewhere else, I would be offended. But obviously, that episode of Futurama where no fan has gone before was a love letter to Star Trek. So I, I know they're fans. So I, I took it in stride. But it's just a funny, just a funny line because when you think about it, you're like ah, about a third, yeah, that's about right. But anyway, uh, you're absolutely right, Ken. And, and you know, for all you guys listening, let us know what your ideas are in the Babel Conference, and maybe we can have a sequel to this episode with your guys' ideas. Huh? How about that? I love that. I love that idea. I, I do. In, in. 
I think when we, um, and I don't know why, but lately we've been talking a lot about Redshirt Starship, but that was one of the the coolest episodes, not because of its subject matter, but because we got to pull in all our listeners and get their opinions out there. And that's conceptually what could happen with this if if you guys are willing to share, because we're, we're willing to read it and talk through it with you. And, uh, you know, and it, and, it, and it helps keep the discussion going. It also lets us say, you know, because there is going to be another Star Trek movie, right? It's going to, it's uh, this whole Hemsworth thing. I don't know where exactly where it's going or when it's going to happen, but we know there's no, there's more Star Trek coming, and it could be a, a sequel to something. Even from that point of view, what would you like to see? You know, how would you like to see it framed? And um, you know, we'll we'll be we'll be having a good time corresponding with you over the next few weeks about that. Absolutely. Well, talking about movie sequels to TOS episodes isn't the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. The 602 Club. I saw Spaceballs first. Because, of course, I'm, you know, the huge Star Wars fan. And uh, it, it, that is a hilarious spoof of Star Wars. But Mel Brooks works in all of these other great spoofs along with that. Melodic Treks. Yeah, I just wanted to tell stories about, I don't know, not just themes, but characters and, and connections between characters that mattered. Because... I tend to write songs that are metaphors cloaked in metaphors, so the, the, it's the truth in plain sight. I always write the truth in plain sight. It's always right there waiting, um, but sometimes if you're not paying attention, you can't see through the metaphor, then you don't see what the truth is. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. I don't know much more than the fact that the entire time I was watching it, I didn't believe that a single thing in that was actual documentary footage in any way and that the woman that was supposedly this psychologist was anything but an actress and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so you can find us on itunes TuneIn, stitcher soundcloud windows phone and of course you can always stream or download the mp3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the rss link as well if you're an apple user please be sure to hit the subscribe button that makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek.fm, you can always find us on Trek.fm contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com Trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek.fm, Facebook.com Trek.fm, and The Babel Conference. Type The Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. So if you're looking for me on the network, you can you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm always on there. Uh, pre, post shows, talking different subjects with all our listeners. And you can also find me on Twitter at Boston SCPO. That means Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show from the early 2000s, and we're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. And also, I'm around the Babel Conference as well, it's always great to talk to you guys on there, making conversation about our shows, other shows, general Star Trek topics, anything really, on there. So thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit.